Hello, and welcome to Local Trust's Big Local podcast. My name is Dan Gregory, and I was asked by Big Local to write about some of the communities in the UK that have received over a million pounds each in lottery funding. The resulting essay, Skittled Out, is all about our social infrastructure and how we can try to defend against the erosion of our community spaces. Skittled Out is available as a mobile-friendly digital download at Local Trust's website, www.localtrust.org.uk where you can also find out a bit more about Big Local. Local Trust asked me to introduce this work at a round table, and this is an edited version of the event and the discussion it started. So here's Matt Leach, Chief Executive of Local Trust, kicking things off. About six months ago, we commissioned the first independent review of Big Local by a non-academic to start to draw on the insight of a much wider range of writers and thinkers who could help us work out what big local means for politicians, for grant makers, for communities struggling with a rapidly changing environment. We've asked Dan Gregory to go out and look at the importance of social and economic infrastructure. I guess we were spurred into asking that question by a slightly remarkable statement for a central banker, Mark Carney, who said post-Brexit that investment in social capital was going to be as important as investment in economic capital if Britain was to succeed. So I think it's going to be a, a really interesting presentation. I'm, I'm massively looking forward to it. Once we've had the presentation, we'll then have a, a conversation about what it might mean. Dan, far away. Thank you very much, Matt, and I'm delighted to be here today. I'm not going to give a lengthy presentation because I guess that's what you've already allowed me to do with the publication. For the last 10 years or so, as I've been following it, various politicians of different colours have talked about social action or social enterprise or social innovation or community enterprise or civic voice. But are we missing something about the underlying stuff that allows that to happen? And I guess what I learned was that everyone has a different name for this. They don't tend to use the words social infrastructure. Um, they tend to word, use words like community buildings, community facilities, community venues, community centres, community assets, amenities, which sounds very unsexy, hubs, anchors. And I looked at various material and, and what other people have written about it before, and there seems to be some language around long-term assets, facilities and structures which support social action, cooperation and the development of social relationships. It's not about the stuff that happens, it's the stuff that supports stuff to happen. What came out of the places that I went to visit, so largely places on the edge of uh, quite big cities, Southampton, Bristol and Manchester, all the places were similar in some ways, that they were largely sort of post-war housing, a mix of uh, social and privately owned. Maybe some of them in the past had not had great reputations, but to me they seemed like quite nice places with decent buildings and nice spaces. The big lesson in the comparison between economic infrastructure and social infrastructure was really just this, the money, the vast amount of money that has been poured into economic infrastructure over the last 10, 20 more years. Um, and the struggle and the small amounts of money we were talking about. And it's not for me to say that's right or wrong, but it was noteworthy and amazing to see the big difference between those sums of money. So just for example, the far past five years alone in Southampton, uh, the ports has seen £280 million of investment go in um, over five years. And yet in places like the Harefield Community Centre, the churches, the pubs, the residents' association are sort of going and all gone. That difference in hundreds of millions versus, are oh, we scraping around for £100 here, £200 there. Um, in Manchester, so this plan's been approved for a £1 billion expansion in Salford Quays. Yet in Sale West, most shops, pubs, the sports field have gone. 
the community centre is worrying, I suppose, on a daily or weekly basis of can we get M50 quid from here, 20 quid from there, 100 pounds, 500 pounds, uh, but there's literally a billion pounds just gone into one particular developer in Salford Keys. I tried to understand how representative they might be of the country at large and what was going on with shops and pubs and post offices in other parts of the country. And I don't know if anyone else has done this, and I've, I've tried to include it as best I can um, in this publication, is to list out uh, a range of data or figures on some of these spaces and centres that have been lost over the last five, ten years. I do find this, I guess, terrifying that you're looking at 28,000 pubs since the 70s have closed, 121 libraries closed in one year alone in 2016, 600 youth centres closed between 2012 and 2016, 1,200 children's centres have shut since 2010, post offices fallen by 50% over the last 30 years, Banks in Britain closing a record 760 branches in one year. About 10 years ago, there were about 600 bingo halls in the UK, and now there's under 400. Even playground facilities, which you might think don't necessarily need much maintenance or finance to keep running, if they just sit there and rest a little bit. 214 playground facilities have closed just since 2014. One out of two skittle alleys have closed in the last couple of decades. One in five regional museums have at least partly closed since 2015, and local authorities are looking at selling or transferring their parks and green spaces. So I'm sure someone else has looked at this somewhere, but I just, for me to kind of list this out and see these added up, something quite fundamental is happening to the nature of the spaces that we meet and get together across the whole country. There's also something about how this must have hit the poorest or the most disadvantaged hardest, because things like short starts are most critical for some of the, the most disadvantaged people in our communities. Maybe the policymakers, policy wonks, uh, researchers into the social sector maybe don't notice this in perhaps the way they should, because they're more often to frequent a pub with a nice gastro sort of option, um, and they haven't maybe noticed the extent of which the bingo halls and the uh, short starts have been closing down across the whole country. And it reminds me a little bit of some of the discussion about post-Brexit about GDP, where a kind of economist would say, well, GDP's actually been increasing, and the idea of someone in uh, a more provincial city that was struggling a bit say, well, that's your GDP. It doesn't feel like that to me in the town that I live. It's not my GDP that's going up. And I think it's a bit like that in this space, that the likes of NCVO will say, well, actually, volunteering is holding up OK, and if you look at the ONS quarterly release on pride in civic spaces, it's gone up by 0.3%. Someone could turn around from one of these areas and say, well, that's your ONS data. <laughs> that's not how it feels here. We can see whether the church is closed or the pub is closed and it's a bit more visceral and obvious. I'd be delighted if in any way this work um, just brought more attention to this and helped people realise that we need to take some responsibility for thinking about the places that we assemble, the places that we get together and the places that build communities. So I hope this is a start. So that was me introducing a few of the findings from the essay. What follows is the conversation that this sparked with the delegates, who included Janet Sutherland of the Academy of Urbanism, Marilyn Taylor of the Institute for Voluntary Action Research, Nick Davis from the Institute of Government, Ben Hughes of the New Economics Foundation, and Jessica Wemban-Smith of Local Trust. We were also joined by Barbara Hancock of the big local group SO18 in Southampton, and Ralph Rudden of the Sale West Group to hear more from their on-the-ground experiences. Here's Matt Leach of Local Trust getting things started. Thanks, Dan. That was a phenomenal starting point for what I think is going to be a, a really interesting conversation. I thought it might be best to kick off by turning to Barbara and then Ralph. Dan's been out to your communities. He's, he's talked to you. He's also looked at the economic infrastructure. To what extent has he got it right? 
I think he has got it right in terms of closures. Like in our area, there were three pubs and three pubs are shut. And it's happened very rapidly. I and mean, we're talking about really you know, in the last five years. So like the life of Big Local, these things have been going on. Um, and also the, the move of assets like community centres that the city council wanting to asset transfer those out of its responsibility. So the, the, the local authority retreating from some of the support. I think there's possibly slightly missing in what you're saying is, is a sort of people organisational side of things because you can have buildings in a neighbourhood and actually not be used by local people at all. So, for example, we've got um, a community school in the area and it is hired out in evenings for sort of sporting things. And although some of that use is a local use, some of it is definitely not. It might be breaking even, but actually its impact in the, uh, its own area might be quite small. But I can see that the, the difficulties of sustaining some social infrastructure when you haven't got other things supporting it, like the local authority, then drive it to having to be more commercially self-reliant and then it can outprice itself from local people. I don't know whether that's something you found down in other areas or whether other people have seen that. But yes, I think there are definitely examples where actually there was a building that seemed to be doing OK financially. At first glance, go, oh, actually, this seems to look quite good, but it's being rented out by a travel agent or something that didn't really have anything to do with engagement for the community. So at face value, it's not vulnerable, but it's not really a community space anymore. Ralph, you've got an amazing community centre right in the heart of the community. In fact, if you were to design an estate around a community, you would get Sale West, wouldn't you? You come onto the estate, the car park is there, and then you get to a place with a sports centre. You've got a boxing club. I think Ricky Hatton used to box there. There's notice board after notice board full of announcements about stuff that's going on. It doesn't feel like that's immediately under threat for lack of things to do. I think it's a case of don't judge a book by its cover. The, the amount of activity that goes on in the community centre in South West is phenomenal, but it is geographically in the wrong place because we don't get any migration from surrounding communities, so, so it would never be sustainable in its present form. We wasn't given any true power. Local trust has given us that power back, and I think it came along at just the right time because austerity was sort of kicking in at its deepest level, and it gave us that safety net. The biggest asset in asset-based community development is the people. You, you can have a building, but if you, if you don't bring the people into the building, you've got a building. We're looking to build a new community centre, still within local trust area. I've already got the half a million pound of match funding in place for it. I've just got to find the rest of it to build it. We've got our local social landlord, so they're going to build at least 400 new houses on our Sale West estate. And I've got to guarantee that as soon as they appoint their main contractor, I can have an introduction and a conversation with them and say, how much are you going to charge me to build a community centre? They're not going to do it for free, but I might get it at a preferred rate. When European funding was there, it never came to sell West because we live in quite an affluent ward of Trafford. Eight years ago, there was two pieces of work that came out. One that uh, put us in the top 3% of the indices of multiple deprivation. And six weeks later, um, Lloyds Bank did a report that said we were number five nationally for disposable income. And then tried to marry them two factors up 
makes for interesting reading. So I think Dan has got it spot on. So you're both the richest and the poorest yeah. community. Yeah. <laughs> um, but unfortunately, you still can't find a way to fix the roof on top of your centre and, and, yeah. you're, and you're waiting for somebody yeah. to help you build a yeah. new one. And a lot of it has to do with the past reputation of the area. I once got a letter addressed to Ralph Rudden, notorious sale western state, because people <laughs> thought that was the address. <laughs> That's how, ba how bad our reputation was. So, so we're pragmatic. We, we know that uh, we need to do something. It's got to be a deal that benefits the residents of RCL West. Janet, in your role at the Academy of Urbanism, you go across the country, you're looking at what makes places work and how you both fix places that are broken, but also how you create places for, for, for the future. To what extent is community infrastructure part of that conversation? The examples that we've come across where, where there is resilience is, you know, it's, it's always people power that manages to create the opportunities that can really help strengthen a community and help build it. And I think what really struck me in Dan's report that, well, your list, that list of all the resources that we're losing, and it is completely terrifying the way that the government just seems to completely disregard the importance of this. You know, the, the fact that you don't make the connection between sure start and educational attainment, youth centres and kids with knives. There's just this complete disconnect, isn't there, in the, in the kind of national psyche about the, what we need to do to be strengthening the social infrastructure. Nick, one of the books I'm most looking forward to this month is Michael West's book on how growth really happens. I wondered whether there were lessons from kind of the way government tackles economic infrastructure that could be brought to bear when we start to try to have conversations uh, with government, with the Treasury, about the importance of, of investing in, in community and civic infrastructure. There's certainly at the moment sort of broad political agreement across the two main political parties, even though there's quite a lot of space between them, on the value of investing in economic infrastructure as a way of boosting productivity, creating jobs, etc. It's fair to say some of the evidence for that isn't quite as clear as you might think, but certainly there's strong political support for that. Yet despite that political support, we still underinvest in our economic infrastructure quite significantly compared to other countries. So it's interesting that even while the case has been made, we're still not putting in the money. I think it's also the case that you can be distracted by the big projects that are invested in, things like uh, HS2, Hinkley Point C, etc., and forget that maybe some of the more local, more mundane infrastructure isn't being invested in. So we've just had the local elections and there was a huge campaign about potholes um, that are a blight in lots of local communities. And I suspect it's pretty similar in the social sphere. We've had a huge investment in the National System Service, for example, at the national level, whilst at the same time we've had mass closures of youth clubs across the country. I think the other key thing I take from economic infrastructure is the importance of a revenue stream afterwards. Mm -hmm. That's clearly one advantage that economic infrastructure has. If you're investing in rail tracks, even if that is then partly subsidised by the taxpayer, or in new energy generation, or in broadband, clearly there is a customer base that you can charge for using those assets once they are built. That's much trickier for social infrastructure where it's the taxpayer in one way or another who's going to be picking it up. Clearly, under the last Labour government, we did see quite a big investment in some types of social infrastructure. So particularly in schools, hospitals, sure start centres, etc. Much of that schools and hospitals investment, even though that government was very proud of it, 
even that was done in a slightly sneaky way because it was done off balance sheet through PFI. And actually the vast majority of PFI that was used was done for social infrastructure like that rather than economic infrastructure. I definitely agree that there is under capital investment in, in social infrastructure that, that, that Dan describes, but I think the, the big problem is who pays for it in year five, 10, 15 to ensure that it's kept in a reasonable state and can continue to be used. And given that a lot of money has been cut from local authorities, that's a really difficult thing to do now. And, and is that a danger for big locals? Because you can be have the possibility of putting capital into buildings. And then when the sort of bit of revenue money to say employer manager has run out, then the whole thing has, has caved in or gone back into trying to find commercial uses. And then the local community is effectively locked out. Because if you ask people why they want this bit of social infrastructure like a community centre, it's because there's things for young people, somewhere to go and all those things. And then the actual reality of trying to deliver that becomes impossible. Quite often, what we what you see when you, you lose a a place where people can meet is just a transfer of the cost or the saving. And you can see it in a positive way in the in um, the Redditch estate where a partnership between the community and the local authority and a very small amount of money from the big local area, I think about £16,000 a year for some youth activity in the community centre mm -hmm. has resulted in ASB and crime dropping through the floor to the extent the police and the PCSOs who were present on the state have been transferred away. If there wasn't that money in the first place, the police would have had to continue to finance their presence. The cost would have been borne, though, in a different part of the accounts. Now, Marilyn, you, you've been, for the last year and a half now, leading work on another bit of local trust-funded research, the Empowered Communities 2020 program and three of the big issues that have come out one's been about power and decision making and others been about the importance of place and community but the third big issue that you've been shaking out has been one of spaces hasn't it absolutely the importance of space was huge i'm really interested to find out that at least two other inquiries that have been going on the, the localism inquiry and the civil society inquiry have also raised spaces as a big issue i loved your book dan because every every page i was nodding my head furiously I said yes 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 and thanks for the statistics they're great <laughs> and things like new, we're finding new developments that are going up with no facilities whatsoever we're finding government invests in community organising, but people get knock on doors and then there's nowhere to meet. I've done quite a bit of work in South Wales. You go in and you see the sort of heritage of the mining industry, but the, the things that have gone, like chapels, workers' institutes, working men's clubs, all those places, not only where people could meet, which are, if you like, the, the bedrock of democratic life, where people can have conversations about the issues that concern them and, and learn about how, how power works, those have gone. Then they got EU money for community hubs and now that's going and now Communities First is going as well. So that whole infrastructure has gone. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got everything going online. So the person who might go to the post office once a week to collect her pension and talk to somebody the post office closes, that vital connection has gone. At all sorts of levels, the absence of space is something that policymakers just don't, because they don't live in that world. 
Yes. Well, I'm, I'm just interested in reflections in the room. What does society look like if it gets worse and worse? You've mentioned politicians aren't noticing. Is that because they think it can't really die? People will come together and make things happen? Or can it die? Well, I think uh, I, I, it can't die. And I would say we are hearing quite a lot from those people who are very concerned, but it's not being articulated in the sort of neat way that fits the policy machinery. So I think we should be very careful about saying it's just uh, ebbing away and nobody is noticing and nobody's putting up a, a stink, because I think they are. It seems to me our challenge is to harness that and maybe at times direct it in such a way as we can sort of achieve the change that you want to see. I think the danger is that a lot of communities would die. And I'm not saying um, put a large amount of funding, but we need to have a joined up conversation around this issue because there's only so much that a individual community can do you can, before you start looking inwards and saying, if no one's going to listen to me, then I'll concentrate on my own area. The story of local trust won't be told, I think, for another eight, ten years. And that's when people will judge on, on how successful local trust will be. There'll be a, a lasting legacy, but it's still being formed and created now. I know how good local trust is, and Barbara knows how good local trust is, and so does the other 148 sort of representatives from the areas. It's getting other people to understand. It can be done, and, and we've got the template. I've talked to Dan in the past about this. In the 19th century, we saw a wave of philanthropic provision of, of community and, and social space. But we then saw in the first half of the 20th century a massive explosion of a private provision, as, as particularly the working class had money in their pockets, they could afford to go to the pubs. We then saw post-war the welfare state, we also saw the council house building programme and every council estate had its community centre as part of the design. But we seem to be in a very strange time when all of that is washing out. Austerity is meaning that the public sector is handing back the keys or, or locking the doors and walking away, and private provision has almost completely disappeared. Most big local estates I go to, the pubs are shut. Are we engaged now in a struggle to keep what's left? Or are there new sorts of places or spaces where people might do the same things? Are people starting to meet in homes again? Are there other spaces where people come together other than the digital space to organise themselves? If everything else is disappearing, there must be some evidence of something else. Marilyn, you, you hung out in barber's shops and, and fish and chip shops when you did your research <laughs> you to try and find out what people were doing and where they were going. I think one of the things we found was people find it very difficult to imagine the future. A lot of people are really struggling just keeping pace with the present. I think meeting in people's homes is fraught with difficulty. I think front room meetings are great for small clusters of people, but people are going to be very wary about opening their homes to people they don't know. I'm not dismissive of digital at all, but it's how to combine digital with face-to-face. -face. This is uh, a bit of a, a conjecture, but people were quite interested in the irony of everyone saying, you know, digital is where it's all at, and community workers saying you've got to be digital. 
and all the stuff that's going on at the present about Facebook and these spaces being owned by huge global enterprises. I can't imagine a sort of community infrastructure levy being placed on Facebook, but you know, I think we've got to be imaginative about the way digital and face-to-face -face can be combined. But for many people, dependence online is actually disempowering them. In terms of actual other new spaces that might be replacing some of the traditional ones, I don't think I or we are necessarily the right people to try and answer that. So the policy land, yeah, gets excited about digital or tech stuff. So a few years ago, hacker spaces, there's going to be one in every town, isn't this exciting? And actually, there isn't one in every town. What there does seem to be now, which is a bit bizarre, is men's sheds. Slightly problematic term, although it comes from a valid ambition to help with mental health of ageing male population. But these men's sheds that haven't been cool and sexy and trendy and advocated by think tanks have just popped up in Trowbridge and Melksham and Westbury. And so there are models which are emerging. Um, but I don't think we'll necessarily be able to predict them from this room. Mark Carney clearly picked up on the social capital mm. word, which is a term that kind of briefly came into fashion yeah. about 10 years ago, yeah. and then everybody got bored with, uh, whilst we started talking about more practical things like community hubs and stuff. Um, should we be getting back to using the language of economists to talk about communities? Clearly there is something not just about language, but about the kind of the power of stories, rather than just talking about abstract principles. If you're talking about the actual impact it is having on people's lives and in communities, you're much more likely to convince people. Clearly in some ways, politicians often respond to data. The treasury certainly responds to, to data, but there's a risk that you're trying to quantify things that are very difficult to quantify. And in the process of trying to quantify them, you create targets with perverse incentives, etc., that kind of take you quite a long way from what you were trying to achieve in the first place. So I think as ever, it's, you know, it's a mixture of approaches that you need. Do you think there is scope to make a better case for investment in community infrastructure if only we got the words right? It's really important to find a way of putting them in the context of the data. The minister can just come out and say, 83% of people are perfectly happy with welfare reform, and the stories are all saying the exact opposite. So you've got to somehow combine them. And it's all part of the same story, isn't it? It's how people just end up behind their own front door because there's that absence of places to connect and to build the strength in our communities. So. I think there's a huge scope for bringing together some of these different issues and, and thinking how collectively, with the power of stories and the data, we, we start to really make a more powerful case. Janet's point is interesting and it raises a, an issue that you, you've talked about in the past yourself, looking at ways in which doctor surgeries could prescribe community activity as part of a social prescription, bringing with it both people as participants, but also maybe revenue streams that could reflect the contribution that you're making to, to their lives, to the lives of the wider community. Is that something that you think is possibly a, a way forward for Sail West? Now, I've got a, uh, a Sail West resident that three years ago was um, illiterate. Her daughter was a main carer. Because we uh, identified health and well-being as one of our four main priorities, we spent a lot of time work working with a lady. 
She now volunteers um, 10 hours a week in the cafe. She reads six books a week. She's got a better social life than me and, and a, a wider range of friends than me. But how do I then put that into a report and get people to understand it? I can tell the story and I, and I can have the lady sat next to me and get her to tell her story. But there are certain people I'll tell that story to and I'll get blank faces because that's not the way they've received data and they've never done it. But if something like community prescribing, because that is on the agenda, there's money comes with that. Because one of the problems is our residents can't afford to pay out money for things. So they come to our things because they're either very cheap or subsidised or we know the family hasn't got any money and you're not going to charge them. But that doesn't make it sustainable. Well, if it's something like community prescribing, which actually sends people with some sort of income to community activities, that would both make them sustainable and then other people may come anyway. Because for something simple, just like um, a walks programme, they might become more viable, other people would come, some people would bring money, some people would bring money because they were being prescribed to them. So I think clever ways to think about income streams, because that's what we struggle with. You think about a building or a resource or a physical resource, but actually I can't see how you make it sustainable. And following on from what Barbara was saying, because I think in some ways what you does illustrate is community economic development. Don't ignore the private sector and big local employers. I know it's very easy for us all to sort of dismiss uh, the, the, the profit incentive as being one that is not compatible with what we're talking about here as social infrastructure, but I think that would be uh, to miss an important opportunity. So I think it's often about the private sector needing to understand how it can engage with precisely what you were just describing so there is profit it remains for profit activity but it is for the benefit of and in some cases driven by local people dan over to you sir thank you Matt. Um, there's probably two sort of extremes of ways of convincing people things and i guess if you're a sort of policy wonk in the treasury you might be interested in economic theory or data uh, other people much more inspired and engaged by stories and I wonder if the bit in the middle is the sort of kind of thing you might see on the front of a newspaper around X thousand shops have closed or 500 communities left without a pub. Uh, so it's sort of data, but it's sort of human enough as well. If I've got this anywhere near right, it's kind of shocking and not quite scandalous isn't the right word, but thousands and thousands of, of places that, that aren't there anymore and we're not sure what, if anything, they've been replaced. Thanks, everybody who's joined us. Um, the next in the series will uh, be an essay by Stephen Bates, the former religious affairs correspondent of The Guardian, on the changing role of faith communities. I hope you'll join us for that podcast as well. As we drew to a close, I had a quick conversation with Barbara and Ralph, who helped run the projects in Southampton SO18 and Sale. What did they think about the issues raised? In the report, there is um, the pictures of boarded up buildings in our area, and it's very hard to see economically how they are opened again. And, and, and by the time they're run down and, and vandalised and things have happened, it becomes even more difficult. The problem has been that public sector buildings, or buildings that were sort of half public sector, half community centre, there was support. And then 
that support helped through the lean times and the difficult times. So if they had a flood, the local authority would come along and say, oh, you've had a flood, we'll come and give help. If it's all dispersed and sort of privatised or people got to stand entirely on their own two feet, what goes is all those meeting places. And then that, that becomes the loneliness agenda. And no to youth organisations. As they become eroded, there is nowhere to go. You lose your spaces, you lose your people. Uh, and that's what people need to realise. Because I look at other big local areas and realise how fortunate I am. The majority of big local areas, after the 10 years, I think will slowly fade away unless something is put in place to keep it sustainable. So many, many thanks to Ralph and to Barbara for making the journey to talk about their experiences. So, what did I learn during this research and the reaction to my essay? I think we really should be quite worried about the erosion of our social infrastructure, or whatever we choose to call it. These spaces like community halls and community centres. We seem to be forgetting that we need these spaces. Then, just as we remember, they could be gone. Once that happens, we may never get them back. Also, these are places where we might meet people we wouldn't normally interact with. Without these spaces, we could retreat further into our own little bubbles and ever-decreasing social circles. We'll be less aware of, of the wider perspective and lives of other people in our communities. I just hope we aren't letting something very valuable slip through our fingers just when we might need it most of all. Don't forget, if you'd like to read the whole of my essay, Skittled Out, you can find a mobile-friendly digital version at Local Trust's website, www.localtrust.org.uk, where you can also find out more about Big Local. Thanks very much for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>